G'day, I'm Ollie Laleve and welcome to GRDC In Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across Southern Australia for this series. and We'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys, learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Southern Australia's grain-growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates, and just about everyone in between. You know how you hear those stories of big tech giants now having come up with their big ideas with a small group of people in a car garage or university dorm? Well. You know, there's someone in agriculture who has a pretty similar story to that. Her incredible idea, though, into agricultural ways, came from Forbes RSL using beer coasters and the RSL carpet as a reference. Cassie Schaaf grew up around farming and found a love for science. She actually signed an eight-year contract with the Department of Environment and Primary Industries when she was just 17 years old, finding her niche in soil which is how we got to a big realisation moment that day in Forbes RSL where she came up with the idea for the Cool Soil Initiative. We won't give too much away, but there are some big names involved. One might even sell your favourite cereal. And their work on the ground has created a real partnership between industry, researchers and agriculture. Cassie has a wealth of knowledge that she shares through multiple initiatives, but also her own consulting, AgriSci. And we're excited to share some of that knowledge with you in this chat. What is a huge skill? And many people can actually struggle with it is you get the academics and the scientists, but then actually being able to put that down in, I'm going to say simple speak. So people like myself can understand Cassie is probably something that you have been absolutely credited to. So I'm excited to maybe jump into some big topics, but also just maybe asking up front that you keep it simple for folks like myself always always <laughs> lots of use of big words if no one appreciates them absolutely them. yeah yeah you're involved in discussions around i guess soil science and agriculture not just here in australia but actually around the world so i'm going to ask you if if we bumped into each other just down the street and and we got chatting how would you tell someone down the street kind of what it is you do and maybe the why behind what you do i help farmers to understand how to support food production better so that they grow better crops and that those follow-through people in the supply chain can understand where their food's coming from and some really great messaging around how good Australian farmers are doing their job. What is it that gets you out of bed each day to be doing it? Such great feedback. So everything you do, there's impact. Um, and there's a real need because the farmers that you're working with and you know, everyone that we work with, they, they ask us to help them because they have a real problem. And so you're actually addressing something real. It's not a perceived concept. It's, it's not some random philosophy. It's actually making decisions that will impact um, gross margins, productivity and sustainability, like really on the ground. It's the nuts and bolts. Yeah, and I think being able to... It's the art of innovation, isn't it? Actually solving a real a real problem. I, I'm interested. Is there something like a career moment or something which you kind of hang your hat on of going, maybe not a favourite memory, it can be a favourite memory, but just something that you'd probably hang your hat on in terms of going, wow, this has really been defining in terms of what I do. Yep. Um, there is a moment that um, about five years ago, I was sitting in the Forbes RSL. Of all with places. the global... Forbes RSL of all places, uh, complete with the carpet. That's uh, it, actually RSL carpets are how I describe the soil types in our region. I actually say it's like an RSL carpet. Um, <laughs> that's a different story. But um, so sitting in the Forbes RSL with the global head of sustainability for Mars Pet Care and um, the program director for the Sustainable Food Lab in America and literally making up a concept that turned out to be the Cool Soil Initiative. Why? So that started on three coasters um, over a beer in the RSL. 
How cool is that? That's a pretty cool story. <laughs> Can I ask? So well, what were the those executives and kinds of people from big food companies doing out in Forbes? So this is a whole other story around the Cool Soil Initiative, but they actually came out to understand how they could support uh, transparency in reporting from the commodities that they purchase from farm that goes into their factories for, for pet food. And wheat is one of those commodities. So globally, that identified that in Australia, um, wheat was something that they wanted to look into. And there was nothing set up at that time to enable a corporate player to support on-ground work in a way that would provide them with the information that they needed whilst contributing to real on-farm change. Wow. So that was that was the three coasters. No better place to be doing it than in yeah. RSL. Pretty much. Middle of summer, 40 degrees. Yeah. I love it. That's that's incredible, Cassie. How long ago was that? That was in early 2018. Okay. Wow. So then we took those three coasters and from there, um, learnt a lot, um, us farmers to support our learning and come with us on the journey and build that from that conceptual moment through to where we are now, um, five years later with, uh, six corporate partners, um, investment from a university and a, and a CRC and about a hundred, uh, 200 farmers from middle of Victoria through to uh, Dubbo in New South Wales and looking at that uh, national scaling. So a question I've got on this, like the enormity of a program like that, you've built it on three coasters, like how important was simplicity and I guess discussion and with, was it, was it just any old idea that was getting thrown on the coaster or was it actually like, now let's talk about it before we throw it on there? We basically wrote on the coasters the three elements of the program that we needed. So we needed farmer buy-in and engagement. We needed transparency of um, accounting into the global requirements. And we needed to deliver against what Mars Pet Care's expectations and need was in that space. So we put things on each coaster that identified ways that we could tap into each of those. And from there, we um, we just started. Because the, the key thing is this was pre-Scope 3. This was pre-ESG, Environment Sustainability Governance Reporting. It was pre-everything in this carbon space. The farmers that we spoke to, we said, look, right now, it's not a thing. But in future, at some point in time, emission reporting is going to be a big deal. So would you be interested in coming on board with us so that we can just start? Um, and I, I still think the key, as you mentioned, is the simplicity of that, Ollie, that we didn't actually wait till we had this massive, glossy, um, eyes dotted, T crossed program. Mm. We actually started off going, we don't know where to go with this. We just know that if we don't start, we won't go anywhere. So we, we came up with a starting point plan. We built off that. We learnt. We went again, we learnt, spent a heap of time talking farmers, industry, we learnt. We did things wrong, we learnt, but because we weren't in a, like a fixed time government bureaucratic process and working with a company that was incredibly um, accommodating and learning with us, we could say, look, we tried this, it didn't work. Um, we want to focus more this direction or Look, it's really important that we spend more time doubling down with farmers around what soil carbon actually is. So let's run some workshops and soil pits specifically around that. Um, yeah. You know, so we just kept refining it, and all the time the farmers knew that they were under no obligation. There was no contracting or commitment. Um, no funds required from farmers. It was their in-kind terms of time, um, and they got to ask the questions. To, which helped us identify where our gaps were that we needed to support them better. So it was, it's been the most incredible ride being able to continually realign as this world is changing so quickly to get to something that we're really proud of. And we see that we have, you know, the, the next step is really around 
um, national scaling. And it's, it's something that there is a lot of um, attention and interest internationally around as well. It's really the first of its kind in the world. Well, I find it really interesting. And I think it's the benefit of where the private sector can really go with it. And if you find the right private partner who goes, it's as you're saying, it's not necessarily about making sure we've built the frameworks and done all the feasibility analysis and everything. It's actually like, let's get in at the ground level. Let's work out what works, what doesn't, and let's take those learnings and actually get the wheels in motion because that's what we need. It's not academia. It's not sitting in a in a boardroom discussing what are the options. It's, it's boots on the ground. And it sounds like they're a really forward-thinking business in that. Exactly. And it was all around need. Like this wasn't just a concept that was a nice to have. This was a need that the that Mars as a global company identified was a key risk for them in the future. So yeah, complete kudos to them. And then as we continued on in 2020, we were joined by Kellogg, the Manildra Group, Allied Pinnacle, Charleston Uni and Food Agility CRC as a cooperative research centre. Last year, we were joined by Corson, our key um, corn milling company that then provides some of the cornflakes for Kellogg's. Um, and a few days ago, we actually signed PepsiCo. Oh my God. So we're, it's, it's continuing to evolve and we have now visibility into what a national program looks like, not just in grains, but actually across all of agriculture. That's so, so exciting, Cassie. Wouldn't it be amazing to actually build something outside of government, but fully accountable, credible, and transparent so that everyone who's involved knows exactly where they stand, exactly how they can report and exactly where their investment's going. So that doesn't matter what food industry connection you're part of, everything is connected. Mm. So the grain that's grown in the crop then is fed to a cow and followed through or through to milk. Or, you know, we have livestock grazing on pastures that next year turn into a cropping. It just makes sense to connect all the dots because otherwise we're just wasting time and burning energy having this conflict and silo competition. Yeah, for sure. And I think bringing those big food companies in, um, it's certainly maybe not perfect in some ways of the way I guess consumerism is driving um, these types of brands, but actually they're going to be a a core piece in delivering outcomes. And I think that's something which some people want to potentially shy away from in terms of these discussions, but actually we need these companies on board and we need them making progress. So it sounds like is absolutely one of those spaces, but yeah, I'm going to take a bit of a, a tangent and let's go back to the early days, Cass. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can decide how far back we, we want to go, but I'm really keen to understand where, where the early influence in agriculture came from and, and maybe what are some of those happy kind of memories of, of ag or the earliest happy memories that you've got of agriculture that drew you into love the sector? So I grew up in, in small communities. Uh, my father's a Lutheran pastor, so we moved around a lot when I was growing up. Um, started up near Biloela, Rockhampton in that space, then down into the sugarcane outside of Brisbane when it was still sugarcane, then down to the Wimmera. Uh, then from there, moved into, I went to boarding school in, down in the Western District, and then in, you know, I went to Melbourne for uni. So basically my whole life was spent in, in rural areas. Um, both of my parents came from farms, so we spent a lot of time on their farms, on, on their family farms as well. But um, it was just just where I, where I was happy. Um, Everything's sort of seemingly so simple with this incredible underlying complexity. But um, yeah, it was just always, I just always knew I wanted to do something in in that space. And the university degree, I, I love it how you say <laughs> all the complexity within the simple, which it, it certainly does seem at service level, but the choice to go and study science, what was, what was the, the driver behind that? So I figured um, initially I looked at VET because I was, I went to uni thinking I was going to go into animal nutrition and biochemistry. Um, I loved, I've always loved cattle. Um, so I thought initially vet, but the idea of spending my time castrating and doing all that stuff, not cool. So then I discovered agricultural science and to me it seemed the amazing entry point of 
possibility. The degree covered everything from botany to dissecting animals to um, obviously soils, agronomy, all that stuff. So it gave you a really nice context of everything. And then kind of a choose your own adventure of where you went from there. So I've got classmates who went into forensic soils analysis for for crime scene investigation, uh, plant breeders, um, gone into urban architecture stuff with landscapes and um, yeah, continued in and others that continued in the kind of more the classical farming space. So you can really do anything. Absolutely. You can. you can basically live out your, your TV dream going on CSI. Well, pretty much if you want to. Um, but yeah, from that then experiences after that meant I've traveled the world and done some cool stuff and kind of that basic egg science degree was, was my ticket to freedom. That basic ag science degree, where where did it actually take you? So first job straight out of university, what did so, you learn? Uh, so I actually started university with a job. Oh, that's right. Cool. I was a cadet for the Victorian Department of Primary Industries. So I was 17 when I finished school because I came from Queensland where at that point you finished school when you were 17. Mm-hmm. I think Queenslanders mature a bit earlier than the rest of the states. I don't know. They were so ten years behind, so it's probably not a good thing to be finishing school early, is it? Well, it's debatable. But um, but yeah, so I finished. I finished year twelve when I was seventeen. Um, I applied for a cadetship. Uh, obviously, coming from a a pastor's family, um, was looking for some additional support through uni, and um, yeah, there were four cadetships offered per year at that point, and um, yeah, I was able to lucky enough to get one of them and that way I actually started as an employee of the of the government when I was 17. So that took me through uni. Uh, they contributed towards um, a bit of living expenses through my degree. During uni I also worked for the department every holidays which meant by the time I finished uni I'd dissected barber's pole worm um, in sheep. I'd cleaned out the bags behind cattle involved in feed conversion efficiency trials which is basically cleaning the crap out of the bag every day. Um, I'd done a heap of soils work, which is when I fell in love with dirt. Um, I'd done horticulture work. So basically by the time I was 21, I I already had a really good feel for agriculture across the state. I had good connections within the Victorian government. I I knew a lot of people and, you know, my first day at work as a soil scientist at Rutherglen, uh, which was my placement when I finished uni, wasn't really a big deal. It was just kind of a, a natural progression. It certainly sounds like you hit the ground running. Do you think, well, do you think like going in and becoming a government employee at the age of 17, you were forced to mature very quickly and potentially missed out on some of those, I guess, the the youth years of university and everything that sits with that? Yeah, look, I have to say um, there was very much an unwritten rule that you would pass everything. Um, the government was investing quite heavily into your education. So it was, um, you know, it certainly wasn't maybe the freewheeling that I would have, you know, you could have thought about. It also meant that when I finished uni, there was no, there was no gap year. There was no, let's contemplate the world and, you know, see what happens. But at that point, um, employment was a bit different. This was quite a long time ago when, um, jobs weren't as kind of um, bountiful as they are now. So having that, you know, to go through four years of a uni degree, knowing that you would actually start employment the day that you finished was, you know, was a big deal in those days. I can't say that the um, the salaries were certainly not as good as what they are now, um, but it was it was actually a really you know, nice transition to then decide where I, where I was going, what kind of work I was going to do. And, um, yet, so m- until I left the department, my only job interview was actually when I was 17. Um, so that was the only time I'd actually had to kind of apply for a job. I'm going to ask a question on that, but first I would have been absolutely stuffed with that, um, needing to pass every subject at uni. I, I studied ag economics as my first run and I'll tell you, I just couldn't do stats, but maybe um, we're very different people, Cass, because, yeah, I, 
I would have been sacked <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> uh, look, it was more that, you know, if you, there, there were a few cadets who, who did enjoy university quite well. Um, and so there, there were kind of meetings arranged where they'd have to go into head office and, um, you know, just have a chat about their, their plan going forward. So that was not something that I was keen to, keen to get into. Doesn't sound like one of those, yeah. Thursday no. morning meetings you probably want to be called into. The, not really. The decision. So how, how long were you with the department for? And then you mentioned um, you had the chance to work in ag around the world. So the decision to leave the department, how did that come about? And what was that next opportunity? So I guess um, I was with the department for about 15 years after I finished uni. So that, um, that was a really incredible learning experience as a scientist. Um, right from the start, I was, I was in a research role. I was given quite a lot of autonomy in, in my research activities, kind of good overall other people around to, to bounce off and ensure that, you know, I was on the right track, but certainly, um, there wasn't clear cut or, um, you know, strong supervision or, or even kind of advocacy or anything else just kind of up to me to to kind of shoot the path um so i learned a lot and um, was able to do everything from you know i spent time on my stomach ex excavating plants looking at um, aluminium toxicity at root tips developed some techniques for for measuring all that stuff um worked with with Syro and other groups around constraints and you know had a chance to come across some different industries and um I guess the first thing, the key thing with that was, you know, I recognized early on that if I didn't do a PhD, that I was glass ceilinged, that, you know, my uh, opportunities as a research scientist would be limited. So when I was still with, as a cadet, um, so I had a four year contract with them after I finished uni. So it was an eight year contract I signed when I was 17. Um, so when I finished that contract, I wrote my own GRDC proposal to do a PhD found my own supervisors and, and project and then got funding. So then spent three years leave without pay from the department, did my PhD um, through Monash Uni. Spent some time in, in Europe, particularly in Italy, working with some of the world's best carbon chemists. Um, so the understanding function of soil organic matter, it's pretty cool. And then kind of continued from there into the synchrotron space, which was at that point just emerging in Australia. and. Synchrotron research is that next level of kind of super cool micro nanoscale reactivity. So, and I'm taking a bit of a long story, Ollie, but it's, we're getting there. Um, but um, that work was was all around understanding nutrient carbon interactions on soil surfaces, why our fertilizers don't have the efficiency and uptake that we were looking for, what was the bonding that was happening, how can we change our practices and fertilizers composition to improve our delivery. So that was pretty cool. Travel the world, developing some techniques in, in that research, um, found a, a physicist who was, um, had all the tools and no application. I had the question and no tools. So we worked together for about three years doing some pretty cool stuff. Uh, worked with the Victorian government as the key liaison people into the Australian synchrotron that was being built in Melbourne which is all around um, electron speed of light, um, creating really intense light that you can then use for, for microscopic scale work. And then did all this cool stuff. And then the government shifted. The perception was more around the delivery of applied research and um, coming back to, I guess, more of a farm level. Um, and then spent the next few years doing budgets and reporting and not much cool science. It was it was all around um, you know, the government at that time was very internal focused on delivery, less vision into what industry needed. It was more about them. Yeah. Got pretty grumpy. Went into Groundhog Day of um, looking at everyone around me who was in their mid fifties and not happy at that time. And I thought this could be me. I had this vision, you know, that flash vision. Um, and that's when I thought, look, it's time to, to push the, you know, push it a bit and try something new. So it was, um, yeah, just acknowledging that the real stuff I really loved doing in the department, the, the, the technical aspects around 
understanding how we can use all these different techniques and technologies at our disposal to understand some really core fundamental questions. As that kind of work wasn't kind of being supported, I thought, well, this is a time for me to learn a whole new set of skills and look at life from a whole different perspective. I've got a question around, because you're obviously chatting about soil carbon and the interaction of various things to, I guess, boost the productivity and, and what's actually happening beneath the surface. Is it, opinion, is it frustrating in terms of just the simplification of the, the carbon space right now and the way people are talking about it when you've spent so long studying it in, in Australia, but also around the world? It's incredibly frustrating, honestly. Um, the key message that I'm hearing in particularly the social media and kind of the, the layman's space is around carbon as a static black box that you can tie with a bow and put a dollar number on it. Mm. And it, it's so frustrating because we know that organic matter, which is what soil carbon is held in, is this continual fluxing entity that provides so many benefits to life, all life, um, from the microbial function through to plant growth, through to animal health and, and ultimately to us, is because it continues to break down, recycle, re um, build, decompose, build, decompose. And because it's that continual fluxing that actually gives it its, its value to kind of have this assumption that you have a number on it and that number won't change or that number will only continue to increase is an incredibly simplistic high risk approach when it has no basis in reality. And so your question on that. So in the carbon space, like it, the, the soil, this is what, the best thing about having a podcast. The soil is always releasing carbon, drawing it down. And that's what's allowing the, I guess the interaction of microbes and nutrients under. Absolutely. Yeah. And the kicker is, is that most of the microbes that we want in our soils that have really good function and support nutrient cycling and, and all those, um, you know, all those aspects we talk about soil health, good structure, infiltration, so water storage, um, nutrient capture and release, all those things are generally driven by microbes that like us breathe in oxygen and breathe out CO2. So if we have a really healthy soil system that's supporting a whole lot of microbial activity and function, by default, we're actually releasing CO2 into the atmosphere. And that's just, that's just the way it is. But all our models around carbon in a black box with a bow doesn't account for the fact that by default, we actually have this continual, um, continual fluxing, loss gain, loss gain, you know, in drought years, we go down, in good years, we go up. Um, but that net gain, um, is what we're talking about. Not a, it's, we, it's like putting something in a room and shutting the door and expecting it to still be there in 10 years time. Yeah. Well, so that's what I'm, I'm curious about. So like, is it possible in a living soil to just keep increasing the amount of carbon in the soil? No. Every soil has what we call a physiological threshold or a climatic threshold. So Australian soils are actually some of the worst in the world in terms of our low capacity to hold carbon. Um, carbon in soil relies primarily on climate. So humidity and moisture is our key driver around maintaining and building carbon. Soil time, so the amount of clay we have in our systems is also a limiter. Fertility, believe it or not, the amount of other nutrients we have in our system, if we don't have enough of those, we hold back carbon. Um, and then management. So there's all these constraints, but, but fundamentally there is a threshold in each system. And as we continue to build carbon in our systems, we come closer to that threshold. And like any diminishing returns curve, we can put in all this effort and not get any return. And even if we get near the top of that curve, all we need is a drought or some other change of management that has a long-term benefit, but short-term carbon release that can actually pull us back down. Mm. So it's where there's no way. And the challenge is a lot of the modeling and predictions around the, the role of soil carbon in mitigating climate change don't clearly account for that asymptotic um, decrease over time. Wow. That's a, 
a much bigger conversation, Cathy, that we can have on that one. Anytime, Ollie. Yeah. No, it is. It's interesting, isn't it? Because as you're saying, we are taking a very simplistic approach to a very, <laughs> I think it goes back to your very first point. Uh, we look at taking, um, yeah, creating what is a very complex task and, and simplifying it. <laughs> or we look at something that is um, like, like the carbon story. It's decept- It looks deceptively simple. Yeah. Um, but then once to scratch the surface, the complexity continues to build. Mm. Tell me a little bit about AgriSci. So AgriSci uh, started its life as a sole trader consulting business I set up when I left DPI, uh, Cool Shave Consulting. So when I left the, the department, I started working with Rivering Plains Farming Group as an extension officer, you know, very different to the white coat uh, lab rat that I used to be. So I spent a lot of time in field working with farmers. Um, Shave Consulting allowed me to continue to work across the industry. So I continued to work with academia, supervised PhD students, um, work with industry on developing products, you know, all those extra cool things that I really enjoyed doing. Then in um, 2019, I out of the blue, received a GRDC award called Recognising Rewarding Excellence in the Grains Industry uh, from the Southern Region, which was completely mind-blowing, which then brought with it a heap of international travel and, and learning. And that as well then kind of shifted shifted thinking as a family when um, prior to that, my husband, Dave Hawkey, was a research agronomist for Heritage Seeds. And as my consulting work continued to build and his work involved a lot of travel and stuff we started to clash and conflict around well you want to be here to sell a trial but I want to be there to work with a company or something so this GADC award was actually the impetus to sit down and go well what's important what do you want to do um, so we decided to have a crack at joining forces so not only is AgriSci the kind of connection and um language interaction between agriculture and science, it's also brings in not just my kind of soil science perspective, but Dave being agronomy production focused with a very strong practical bent meant that we were able to to expand, you know, as a business what we could what we could offer and support with. And how's that going, working with your husband? Still married. Yeah. Um, first tick. Yep, tick. So look <laughs> it works really well. Um we have, I think we have a lot of mutual respect for what what we do. We look at the world completely differently. So every time any of the projects that we work on um, or supporting farmers on ground, he'll come up with a completely different perspective than, me, than I will. And so then we join the two together and, and we have more of a complete picture. That also means that there's, you know, the other person to bounce off all the time. So... I feel like we're we're able to um, provide a much richer offering in terms of what we can do to support our clients and and in industry because it's not just kind of my brain, but it's actually kind of um, you know by the power of two. By the time you you have all your dinner time discussions around what's going on and you know all that time just kind of ticking over problems, just to bounce off someone else just adds so much value. I was going to ask on this because I think it's something which our GRDC listeners will be really interested in, especially those who are working in the family business alongside partners or alongside sons or daughters or whatever it might be, parents. Like, how do you separate the work from also the family and life? You just, you, you have to approach it as a professional. And so as professionals working together, we have you know, very clear expectations of what we each need to deliver on to, to get to where we need to be. We talk a lot about work, obviously, outside of work hours, but, you know, I think the fact that we've set it up as a, as a separate business, um, our kids have, uh, we've engaged them very well in terms of their ownership, you know, their perception of it as a family business that they have contribution into as well. So it's, um, yeah, it's it's something that we just put us put on the shelf when we we do other stuff, and then 
yeah, we, we just come back to it. But it's certainly been um, awesome in terms of your work-life integration. We have offices right next to the house. So I have a 30-metre commute um, and try not to trip over the dog. <laughs> um, but it's, yeah, it's working well, I think. But the key thing, I, I think, is it's just that honesty of communication. There's, there's no... There's just no room for any small small niggles because it very quickly can come, you know, big niggles because there's, you know, that working environment is so closely connected to the home environment. So I think the honesty of communication and how we're tracking is really important. A, a question around the future of AgriSar and where it's going. Are you hoping that it's something that your kids take up or there's opportunity for someone else to come in and take it at some stage for you guys? Look, this, you know, in future, if the kids were interested in coming on board, um, they already can help out with soil sampling and bag labeling and all that kind of stuff. Um, if it was something that ticked into them, that's great. But, um, we've got no expectation of building an empire or, you know, it's just, it's just the means by which we can, we can do our thing. Yeah. Cool. How good. But yeah. Look, we're, we're proud of it. Um, you know, we've never really advertised, but we have, you know, a good set of clientele, good, good partners that we work with. So we're, yeah, it's going really well. And it's quite freeing being able to, I guess, create that own flexibility and the, the effort and reward that you put in is actually paid back either monetary wise or actually just doing work that you really want to work on, which is a pretty special way to spend the amount of time that everyone does at work. Absolutely. Um, it's very liberating to say, look, I'm going, you know, going to go pretty hardcore this week cause I've got a lot on. Um, but then next week we might knock off work a bit early on a Friday and go camping or something. So just that ownership of how we spend our time and to see, okay, sometimes it does get pretty full, full ball, but because it's such a clear connection between effort and, and reward, it's yeah, it's nice. And we always work with nice people because end of the day we get to choose what we do. That is very important. A, a question, and this might be a bit of a superpower of you working with David, but when it comes to communicating these complex scientific areas to farmers, what are the tricks in doing it and and how have you approached that? I think the, the key is, is to always think that every farmer who decides to come and listen to something, attend a soil pit, a paddock walk or a workshop, anything, any time a farmer decides to leave their farm and come to see something, they've made a choice that what you have to say is of high value to them. It's not compulsory for farmers to attend anything. And they've always got so many more things happening than they have time, right? So the key is, is that every farmer who comes to something comes because they they're looking for information or they have a, a question or an issue that they have to deal with that is intimately connected with their business productivity, sustainability or something. So they have a need and they have a real thinking that they is something that they need to learn more about. So every time you rock up to an event as a, um, you know, if I'm invited to do something or I'm, you know, doing a soil pit or something and farmers come, you need to make sure that those farmers are getting something that they can use out of that. So that's the key. It's not the fact that um, you have a divine right to swan in and share what you think is really important. It's actually around your responsibility of saying, I need to understand the farming systems of the people that I'm coming to talk to about to make sure that what I have to say can connect into their systems. And I need to say that in a way so they they get something that they can use. Mm. So not just give them numbers and key points and kind of, a, you know, sharing of, of your information. It's a, it has to be done in a way that you're providing the building blocks to the results that you, you should give so that when they go away, they don't just think about kilos of N per hectare per rotation or something, but they understand what's driving that system so that they can then address the next problem better. Mm. It's, 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 it's a, it's real. 
it's not just a you know tick a box. So oh, we've we've run three events and we've got a hundred farmers. You know, so gold star. If if you're not giving farmers something that they can use, then you're wasting their time. Yeah, and you are. It's coming kind of exactly back to where you, what you said right at the beginning of the conversation around finding that that problem and then delivering to the need of that problem and then exactly that you're not wasting people's time and everything else that kind of sits with that yeah and I, honestly i think as an industry we haven't respected that well enough mm. because thinking back to my research days with dpi when you know writing funding submissions like as per grdc and everyone else be a research project you would map out all your techniques technologies results your outcomes everything else and then end of the day there'd be a or into the form that be a how do you how will you extend this research or your extension and adoption strategy? Mm. And so then every researcher would say, oh, okay, we'll we'll, we'll do two workshops to to tell farmers what we're doing, um, or we'll we'll just tick off on those things. But yeah, you know, I think the question needs to be asked: if it's a fundamental research question, farmers may not be the audience. Um, if they are the audience, then you need to be very clear around how what you're doing is going to benefit them, not just tick off on your um, KPIs. Yeah. A question that I've got for you around, I guess, uh, the words farming better and helping farmers farm better. Like, how, how do you define what farming better means? Every farmer is on their own base. So to say, well, farming better needs to tick off on X, Y, and Z, I think is, would be very simplistic. So I think we just need to look at it as a continual improvement. Some farmers are already at the high end of, of where they can be in terms of practice, sustainability, productivity, all that stuff. Other farmers aren't. But as long as every far, if as long as a farmer is continuing to shift that dial around, just doing something better on their farm for their business, then I think we've won. It's the incremental change, isn't it? And someone said it to me just recently. It's about, it's not a, a 40% target of say emissions reductions. It's a, it's 40% for every business and every business can do their six or 7% each year and just work, plug away at that. Um, yeah. Whatever it might be, it might be 40% profit growth over a period of time and it's breaking it down into that incremental challenge. And Exactly. Yeah. But like... Um, for example, some farmers are, have already adopted all, you know, variable rate technology, um, the controlled traffic farming to reduce their compaction. They're they're working on slow release nitrogen fertilizers, for example, which have a massive impact reduction in their emission footprint. Uh, they've got legumes in their rotation to catch more nitrogen. They they're doing everything right. So in those systems, we go, well, what's that next little tweak that we can do? Other farmers are still coming to terms with the idea that. Um, to be sustainable, they need to be incorporating lime into their systems on a regular basis to reduce acidity because that acidity becomes the number one reason why their plants aren't growing. So our work with those farmers is around, okay, let's apply some lime and mix it in so that you can reduce that constraint, which then opens the door for being able to grow legumes in your system to catch nitrogen, make your nutrients work better. You know, you're not, you, the urea that, that you use becomes more efficient. So identifying what that key constraint is for each farmer to then nudge up from. Mm. No one's better or worse. They're just all at different stages. And that's, if we miss all that fundamental stuff because we're focused on the capacity for ag tech to catch some nice pictures and, and do stuff at the higher end, that say 5% of farmers may be able to get value from. We're not coming back down to, okay, what's some fundamental constraints that face the industry and let's work on those. Yep. And I think we're really missing the, the boat a bit. Interesting. Now, Kazi, I've got five questions which I want to finish on, which we ask everyone. So I hope, let's just run with the first things that come to mind for it. It makes it the most fun. <laughs> okay. They're, they're all easy. So there's no way you can get them wrong. wrong. But what is your favorite grain-based dish? Say a slow cooker chickpea curry. Really, okay. really nice. I did say there was no way you can get it wrong, but this next question could be interpreted by different people differently. But who would be three people you'd invite around for this dish? Okay. Well, I have to invite Dave. I reckon. Um, so you got it right. Because um, I'm only going to hear half the conversation. 
Okay, tick. Um, yep. But I'm not going to count him as my three. Okay. Because how awesome would it be to have someone like Murray Watt, someone who influences Australian ag policy and connection with the rest of the world at that level, someone such as the the vice president of Kellogg for Sustainability and Innovation, who I met recently, um, who is dealing with all this sustainability and reporting stuff in a way that actually impacts their business globally. So they can't hide from the hard questions because they have to deliver against it. Mm-hmm. So you've got someone who's involved in the broader policy perspective, someone who has to take that global accountability view and who is vulnerable to market forces according to their approach to that globally, and one of the awesome farmers that we work with. Get the get them around a table, glass of wine, chickpea curry. How amazing would that be? It'd be a heck of a conversation. Do you reckon there's any, any room for flies on the wall? <laughs> <laughs> but that's the problem, Ollie, is that at the moment we're all disconnected. But policy yeah. people over there, we've got the companies over in their company box. You're the ones who are actually struggling to deal with this, all this stuff at a you know, at a rubber hits the road level. And then you've got the farmers who are generally stuck down the bottom and having to deal with whatever crap comes down, you know, if filters down. Mm. If, whereas, yeah, if all those segments are part of the solution, then everyone wins. Absolutely. Now, Cassie, what was your first ever job? Cleaning windows. Interesting. When I, yeah. I mean, I, as I said, I was a cadet to department, so I was officially employed when I was 17, but yeah. to, um, yeah, to get cash to support, um, to support me at uni, I spent what holiday time I had, uh, yeah, cleaning windows and doing whatever had to be done to, to get cash. So. That's cool. Yeah. Not really what you expect, but. Not at all. What's something on your bucket list? Like there's a heap of stuff, um, but the first thing that sort of comes to mind is taking a month off, no plans, no commitments, going kite. We do quite a bit of kayaking mm. um, and stuff with it as a family. I really enjoy horse riding. Got a horse and do that sort of stuff. Just a month of just being, I think, between raising a family and working and running a business and stuff. Be nice just to take it down a notch for a bit. Yeah, I like the sound of that. And what's a question you'd like me to ask someone else who's on the podcast? Probably, what brings you joy? Hmm. I like that. Can I ask it back to you? When I see someone's facial expression change because they've got something, when I've spent a few minutes with a whiteboard or drawing pictures in the dirt and I see the light bulb moment where everything else just falls into place. To me, that's, that's the gold. It's yeah, that's the win. And there's times when literally I've seen, seen founders kind of stand up straighter, kind of like a load's taken off them. It's, um, Pretty empowering. That's that's the win. Did you see my face change before when we were discussing that soil carbon? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes. It just when that when and that's what it, that's what I'm always searching for is if you don't if you don't get to that point then have you have you. Being able to, yeah, is that person going to drive home with a whole new raft of thoughts going through their head and opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's it's worth it. And I think probably off the back of that, like it, when you have those moments or when someone has that moment and that impact on you, it's something that then enters kind of your conscious thinking. And so I'll be 
driving later today and I'll be thinking, I'll be like, God, what Cassie said this morning was just so interesting. And it was like, it was one of those aha mic drop moments. <laughs> yeah. But the real beauty I think is I've just been so lucky in my career today in that I've spent so much time being a science geek at that kind of molecular level. And then at the other end, like literally I've been in a saw pit in a 40 degree heat with 50 farmers around me one day. And the next day I was in the Australian Synchrotron in Melbourne with a PhD student designing experiments looking at um, spectroscopy. But being able to bring those worlds together in a way that the lab coat world gets the issues that farmers have and can redesign their experimental work so that it actually makes sense and can be communicated out. And then at the other end, that farmers can understand how all this science is actually going to bring value to their world. It, um, yeah, it's, it's quite magic. It is. Well, Cassie, I think this conversation has been pretty magical as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to have a chat. And I think your career is really cool. And I think as simple as it was before, your ability to kind of take, and I think it's something which will stick with me well beyond this conversation, but I guess just the whole conversation in your career, but especially the moment when we started chatting about soil and carbon, and I guess the, the theme of our chat, which has been around, um, yeah, the world of agriculture and soils and everything else is incredibly complex and there are ways that you can simplify it, but there's also times when you can't simplify it. And I think that's something which um, has been really interesting for me to, to think about and, and I'll probably keep reflecting on off the back of this conversation is, well, there are areas which every day Joe or Sarah or John or whoever it is can tune in and be part of those conversations. But then there is those areas of the bigger discussions, which we really need to put our faith and trust in the experts and actually sit and listen and having people like yourself, Cassie, who can decipher that from a very highly intellectual level back down to the everyday is, is probably a superpower of yours. So thank you for sharing that with us. <laughs> no worries, Ollie. All good. Enjoy your weekend. We'll chat to you soon. All right. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.